Good morning to everyone listening. My name is Eliana Svilik, and welcome to the fifth episode of my podcast, Capital Connections. On this podcast, we are going to explore the intersection between economics and politics, as well as everyday life. We are going to try to understand why the flow of money between countries and companies matters. This podcast is an educational initiative with the goal of educating my peers, high school students, on the global political economic events that schools often neglect to teach fully, despite their relevance to our lives. Today, we are going to be discussing the impact of climate change on globalization and the global economy. We will have a fantastic guest here today to help us understand these real consequences. But as always, here's some background to start with. Over the last few centuries, an increasingly globalized world spurred onwards by technological innovation that continually overcomes the limits of time and space has created a global web of economic dependency. Globalization itself is international interaction among different entities, people, governments, corporations, etc. Societies have long interacted with each other, but I want to specifically focus on global intercontinental interactions. Beginning with the European conquest of the Americas in the 16th and 17th centuries, it marked the beginning of a significant connection between the world's two major land masses as mercantilism took hold of Europe. In 1760, the Industrial Revolution sparked the first widespread, efficient manufacturing practices and created major demand for raw materials. Previously, the need for raw materials had mainly been driven by bullionism, an economic theory that measures wealth based on the accumulation of gold and silver. Roughly a century after the Industrial Revolution began, European countries would take part in the scramble for Africa and establish colonies whose purpose was almost exclusively to provide raw materials. These materials would then be manufactured in Europe for Western markets. Today, in the third stage of globalization, marked by the internet and 24-7 connection, the interrelation of the global economy is at its most developed. One framework for understanding the modern world's economy divides the globe into three classes of countries, each of which is vital to maintaining the current world order and global supply chains. European, North American, and East Asian nations are the core countries. They provide the major markets for goods produced globally and generally rake in the majority of the money. They have services, or skill-based economies. Next, you have the semi-peripheral countries, mostly located in parts of Latin America, Asia, Eastern Europe slash Western Asia, North Africa and the Middle East, and some parts of the African continent. These are your manufacturing economies, chiefly responsible for producing the billions of goods that humans buy every year. Lastly, there are the peripheral countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Generally, these countries have raw material-based industries and play the role of extracting materials for the world's economy. Together, these three classes of countries all depend on each other and are part of a cycle of production and consumption. Over the past year and a half, global supply chains have been hit hard by COVID. The impact continues today, with the Wall Street Journal warning that it is, quote, too late to save the Christmas retail season. Shipping prices and raw material prices are skyrocketing due to a labor shortage in crucial countries, uneven recovery across the globe, 
and a renewed demand for finished products in the reopened Western markets. However, as big of a disaster as COVID is for the global economy, humanity is facing a far larger, long-term crisis, climate change. Climate change is caused by a buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Gases put there by humans chiefly through the systemic combustion of fossil fuels, but also through deforestation, the burning of trash and biomass, and livestock methane emissions, to name just a few causes. This buildup of greenhouse gases has a warming effect on the planet's temperature, changing weather patterns globally and causing well-documented impacts on the environment, such as habitat loss, rising sea levels, and increased occurrence as well as intensity of dangerous weather events. Driven by a relentless cycle of fossil fuel-reliant production and consumption, climate change is having and will continue to have very real impacts on the global economy. Here to help us understand these impacts is Mr. Thomas Friedman, three-time Pulitzer Prize winner, New York Times journalist and opinion columnist, and author of seven books, including Hot, Flat, and Crowded, as well as From Beirut to Jerusalem. Mr. Friedman joined the New York Times in 1981 and has reported on Middle Eastern affairs from both Beirut and Jerusalem. He has also written as the Washington correspondent and White House correspondent for the New York Times, before beginning a foreign affairs op-ed column for the newspaper in 1995. He mainly reports on globalization, technology, and foreign affairs. Mr. Friedman received his B.A. in Mediterranean Studies from Barnes University and his Master's Degree in Middle East Studies from the University of Oxford. Mr. Friedman, I'm so grateful that you could join us today. Thank you for being here. Happy to be with you, Elia. Thank you. In your extensive career as a reporter, you have written about many topics from domestic policy to foreign affairs to climate change to globalization. A high percentage of my generation views climate change as one of the most alarming crises facing humanity. What drew you to this topic? Well, it's a very good question. For me, it was from several different angles. First, I was very good friends with the people who founded Conservation International, which is a great NGO that works to preserve habitat and biodiversity around the world. And I traveled around the world with them to amazing places from the Atlantic rainforest to the, in Brazil, the, down the Amazon to Indonesia. I went with the U.S. Navy in a submarine under the Arctic and um, really began to appreciate, you know, not only what was happening to natural systems, but how much natural systems don't need us, but we need nature and exactly why uh, all of nature's buffers and all the great services that nature provides for us, like cleaning the air of carbon or storing carbon or uh, filtering water on the banks of a river or, or cushioning storms through mangroves on the coast of Louisiana. So that was one thing. And the other, what drew me to it, Eliana, was that I was covering the Middle East and I was covering the Middle East at a time when a lot of some of the, the states like Iran and others were behaving very badly. It occurred to me they one reason they could behave so badly is because they had this resource called oil where they didn't really have to pay attention to their people. They just had to stick a pipe in the ground. And so if the price of oil went down, maybe the pace of freedom would go up. Um, I actually coined that as a, as a term. You know, it, it was a thesis about petro-democracy, that as the price of oil goes down, the pace of freedom will go up because these countries actually have to open up to the world. So I thought, well, we could, we could kind of kill two birds with one stone. We could improve the climate and maybe improve the climate of global geopolitics if we brought the price of oil down by replacing it with renewables and nuclear power. 
Wow, that's amazing. So I'm glad you mentioned Iran and oil because we will be discussing both. Mm -hmm. But to begin with, climate change is very much driven by our reliance on fossil fuels, such as oil. Help us understand the role they play in supply chains that make them so inextricable from our modern global economy. Well, you know, what one of the hardest things for uh, advocates like myself who believe in renewable energy and want to see renewable energy is, is really around transportation fuels. Trucks, planes, and ships. Trucks, planes, and ships are big users of historically coal in the case of ships, and then diesel and dirty and ultimately cleaner fuels, but all fossil fuel based you know, for, for trucks and airplanes. And so one of the great challenges today that, that some of the, I think, more forward-looking oil companies are working on, like Chevron, for instance, is trying to figure out how we can develop renewable or semi-renewable energy and, and, and clean options for shipping, airlines, trains, and cars, and trucks, basically. And because without that, because for just the reasons you said, Elia, you know, there's, thanks to globalization, there's just so much shipping now back and forth. And every one of those packages we send or FedEx boxes we get came on a truck, came on a plane, and likely came on a ship. And so finding ways to get clean power to, as just as you said, supply our supply chains, that, that's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, thank you. So obviously, we are running out of fossil fuels. According to Stanford University, the global supply of oil will run out in 2052, followed by gas in 2060 and coal in 2090. Renewable energy has to be the future especially as global energy consumption only increases. Do you think that there is enough capital being allocated to alternative energy? And if so, where is the money coming from? Well, it's, again, another good question. We could always use more. And that's why part of President Biden's legislation actually proposes using financial incentives to get our power plants to shift more quickly off, you know, coal, oil, and and even natural gas. You know, the the real question is... um, can you get these to scale? And the really the only way to get them to scale is through the market. My own preference is a carbon tax. Just put a car- tax on carbon that runs right through everything in the economy. You can even rebate a portion of it to people, uh, lower income people, so they aren't hurt by it. And 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 basically, you know, raise the cost of emitting carbon or producing goods that emit carbon. And I think that's that's kind of the best way to actually deal with the problem at scale is a carbon tax, but politically it's very hard. Of course, yeah. So how do you see existing energy companies, particularly companies that make their money off of fossil fuels, handling the transition from fossil fuels to alternative energy sources? Some of them are like really Darth Vader, like bad, like Exxon. Some I think have gotten the message like California-based Chevron, you know, given where it lives, uh, they've been you know, really, I think, trying to become more of an energy company and less of an oil company. And that's the transition we want to see. And then you know, some like Shell and, and BP over in Europe have even been more forward-leaning when it comes to completely uh, removing emissions you know, by a set date from, from their, whole, their whole supply chain and manufacturing chain. Right. So we are facing a lack of global unity in humanity's response to climate change. In an interview with McKinsey and Company in 2019, you talked about our world changing from, quote, interconnected to interdependent. 
Why does an interdependent world necessitate unity even more than an interconnected world? Um, it's, again, it's another good question because that is that is the problem. You, you you alluded to it in your question. We aren't just interconnected anymore. We aren't even just interdependent. We're actually fused. We're like fused together. We're fused by telecommunications and supply chains, and and we're fused by climate change. In LA last summer, you 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 could have been breathing the fires of New Zealand or or Australia. So that is a real a real challenge to to get people to think larger than themselves in two ways. Uh, one way is that Conservation International has a motto, lost there, felt here. Lost there, felt here. And just a way of saying, you know, you tear down your forest in Indonesia, it'll be felt here. So we, we are you know, intertwined in, in that way. And you know, Mother Nature, she actually doesn't know where the border between California and Mexico is. And she doesn't care. You know, she's just chemistry, biology, and physics. That's all she is. So you can't talk her up. You can't talk her down. You can't say Mother Nature. We've been having a bad winter. Could you take a few weeks off? She's going to do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And she always bats lines. And she always bats a thousand. So do not mess with Mother Nature. And that's kind of what we've been doing. And so we're, we're, we're all on this boat together. And as the saying goes, you know, there's no planet B. Like if we mess up this planet, there's no planet B for us to hop over to with all respect to Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and their space yachts. And so we need to take care of this planet. And what that means is a lot, a, a lot of people have, have been talking about that we have to rise to a level of stewardship, Eliana, in these two ways. One is, as I say, what we do affects someone in China. What someone in China does affects someone in Vietnam. We have to understand, respect that, and respond to it. But you're 15, I'm 68, um, and my generation has not been very good stewards. So we, it's for your generation, and I just have a, I had a grandson born, and I'm really worried. Congratulations. That world, you know, thank you. That he's growing up in. So one of the hardest things about climate change is that it calls on one generation to make sacrifices on behalf of another generation that hasn't even been born yet. Yeah. So it's hard enough to get people to make sacrifices for their own kids or for their own neighbors, but to make sacrifices for an unborn generation is really, really hard. But those are kind of the two ways we have to think about interdependence. We're interdependent with all these other countries around the world now, but we're also interdependent whether we like it, we're morally interdependent between my generation and the unborn children. Of course, yes. So as you mentioned, what we do here affects what other people do around the world and climate change around the world. And it has already caused climate migration, especially as islands and coasts are overtaken by the ocean, places become no longer inhabitable, and natural disasters destroy cities, forcing people to move. What effect is climate migration having on the global economy and what effects do you see it having in the coming decades? Well, it's, it's, it's having huge effects. One is it's enormously destabilizing. When 15,000 Haitians suddenly show up under a bridge on the Texas-Mexico border, it, it uh, poses a huge challenge to the government and the government's kind of in a lose-lose position. If it, if it sends them back, people say we are morally you know, just deaf 
and uh, worse were, were immoral. And if we take them, um, it produces a populist backlash where people say, how can we possibly absorb 15,000 Haitians? And, and what does that mean you know, for my community, my town, whatever? And it's, it's demographic balance because I'm super pro-immigration myself, but you want to do it at a pace that people can, that the immigrants can be properly absorbed and the communities can properly absorb them. And, and maybe one of the things that happened in the UK and in America the last decade that triggered the Trump and Brexit backlashes, people felt their, their homes were being changed too quickly before they could adapt and adjust. So, but all of these refugee movements, I, I did a documentary for National Geographic several years ago about migrations from Senegal through Niger up to Europe. And, you know, they're all deeply stressed out countries that have lost a lot of their topsoil, been hammered by migration, agriculture has been pummeled. And so people do what is the only rational thing to do in that situation. They, they hit the road. Right, of course. So as you mentioned, the Haitian environmental crisis that just happened We recently got a taste of what is to come when President Biden's administration deported 4,000 Haitian environmental refugees who are fleeing the devastating effects of a 7.2 magnitude earthquake and a presidential assassination. Do you think that tightening borders and increasing nationalism, as you somewhat mentioned already, is going to be the global response to climate migration? Yes, I think you're going to see a lot of that, you know, um, and it's going to be enormously destabilizing. It's just hard, it's much harder now to be a country for reasons of technology, for reasons of climate, for reasons of population, reasons of competition with a big market and producer like China. And so a lot of countries are just going to start to break up. They already have. That's what you see in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Haiti, Venezuela, excuse me, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Djibouti, Somalia. You know, these are countries that just can't make it on their own. They're kind of too late for any foreign power to want to come in and sort them out. And they failed at self-government. So that's a real, we haven't seen that before. And it's going to be a real challenge of governance. Of course, thank you. So I wanted to discuss your recent article for the New York Times titled, A Scary Winter is Coming, Don't Blame the Greens. In it, you contend that a lack of clean energy worldwide and quote, every utility in Europe and Asia trying to meet newly minted environmental, social, and governance standards for clean energy, has created a perfect storm. A lack of renewable energy will force countries to fall back on fuels such as national gas, which is often seen as a bridge between fossil fuels and renewable clean energy, and reluctantly oil, driving prices of both up astronomically as economies restart. What are the consequences of this energy crisis for the, quote, tectonic geopolitical plates that holds up the world's economy? Well, again, it's a good question. And the answer is that if we have a very bad winter and people literally can't get heat in their homes or have to, to choose between heating and eating, you could get a real populist backlash against the Green Movement. Because people will say to them, you know, I, I, um, I had a belt on. It was kind of holding up my economy. And then you told me to take off my belt, this sort of you know, dirty power, but you didn't have the suspenders ready. You know, if you want me to take off my belt, you need to have the suspenders ready. And you didn't have sufficient clean power to do that. And what that could produce is a real backlash against the climate movement. And I, I, I have a lot of fear of that because that could really set us back a couple more years. 
Yes, thank you. And as you mentioned in your article, Russia and China could all of a sudden be holding a lot of powerful cards. Absolutely. Because they are big producers of oil and natural gas, respectively. So what are the options for the U.S. and its allies in Europe and Asia if Russia and Iran use this energy crisis as an opportunity to reassert themselves? Uh, The results won't be good. I mean, Putin will make himself the power broker in Europe. He'll be able to decide, I think I'm going to give Germany gas and I'm not going to give Poland gas. You know, it can be like that. Or Mr. Poland, if you want gas, you you need to be a little nicer to me or nicer to your Russian-speaking citizens. So it's going to give him enormous leverage. Iran doesn't have quite the same amount of leverage because it's only an oil exporter, and it exports to China primarily. But mm-hmm. because we're in the middle of these nuclear talks with Iran, and we were basically telling the Iranians, you know, if you don't kind of sit up straight and get back into the nuclear negotiation, we're going we're gonna to bomb you. We're going to hammer you. And uh, the Iranians said, I don't believe it. You know, no, they really don't believe it. Because if we were to do any kind of military action in the Gulf now and disrupt the global gas supplies and oil supplies coming from the Gulf, the prices will go through the roof. What is it that we can do to prevent this? That's a very, very good question. I mean, there's there's two things we can do. Obviously, it's get the government to put in place things like a carbon tax that will have the mass scale that we need in order to start affecting things. I think we should go back to cur- encouraging conservation and energy efficiency, but even in your own home. Uh, turn down the lights, turn off the lights. I mean, just be more energy conscious. That can save millions of barrels of oil. And, and call out bad actors, you know, I mean, really call them out for, for being disinterested in this whole problem. Yes, thank you. So what are the long-term impacts of an energy shortage on supply chains? Well, it's a good question, again, because what it could do is really drive a lot of manufacturing back into the United States. It'll be more expensive. And a lot of it will have to be done by robots and 3D printers. But people would, would be ready to do that, you know, to see our supply lines shortened and not have to worry about the price of oil and shipping costs from China port, from Shanghai port to San Francisco or Los Angeles. And uh, I think we're, we're just at the beginning of that shift now. Interesting. Thank you. So in early November, a couple of weeks from now, the UK will be hosting COP26 the 26th UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. The countries that signed the Paris Climate Accords at COP21 are expected to submit new, ambitious plans to lower carbon emissions in order to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, as agreed upon in 2015. What does the world need for major emitters such as China, India, and the U.S.? I think the most important thing, obviously every country needs to do what it can. But I think the most important thing, Elian, this was my thesis in Hot, Flat, and Crowded, is we, America, need to just push renewables like wind, solar, hydro, biomass. Because when we do that for our own consumption, we drive them down the cost-volume curve. The volume goes up, and therefore the unit costs start to go down. And our goal is to drive them down the cost-volume curve to a level where people all over the world can afford them. That's my, that's my goal. So I don't know what Russia should do or China. I mean, you want them both to be, you know, shifting off coal um, and into, into cleaner fuels. But I know what we can do that would make a difference. Yes, thank you. So 
How can the world get major emitters who have so far talked a lot but not done very much to agree on ambitious yeah. plans? Well, in America, you got to elect the right people, and then even when you elect them, you got to elect enough of them that they can really change the laws to do the kind of things I'm talking about or stimulate. At the same time, you want to massively fund research to hope that somebody really comes up with some something we haven't thought of or dreamt of, like fusion energy from fusion, which a lot of people are playing with. There's a lot of research into energy from hydrogen. There's some a lot of prototypes out there now, but I think that that's you know put everyone's thinking cap on, or tell everyone they've got to put their thinking cap on, because a country that does own this clean energy technology will have enormous power in the world, economic power and technical power. Yes, thank you. So it is becoming increasingly clear that poorer countries require the aid of the world's richer countries to mitigate global warming and reduce their carbon emissions. Do you expect to see unity and leadership from the world's more economically developed and powerful countries in Glasgow?、Uh, not really. You know, I, I think you'll hear a lot of happy talk, and I mean, I'm going there. I'm not sure why, but you know, it, any conference is big. I, you know, I, I have kind of a rule of life that any conference that has to be hit. Held inside an airline hangar, you know, probably is going to be very effective. Getting 192 countries to agree on anything, but at the same time, it gives momentum. It creates, it changes minds. It produces a generation like yours that will not even countenance any alternatives to this. So I'm all for it. You know, we're going to burn a lot of fossil fuel to make it happen, but、um, and create a lot of hot air. But I'm, I'm, I'm nevertheless, I'm still for it, and I'm going, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing all kinds of people there. So. Can you help me understand the two options? What will the world look like if we don't deal with climate change, and what will the world look like if we do the actual work? Well, I guess a good question to close on. You know, if let's take the dark scenario first. If we if we don't, you know, rise to this challenge, and the challenge is really we need to we need to put in place right now the technologies that will enable us to manage what is now unavoidable. There's a there's a degree of climate change and instability and Extreme storms and weather that are now inevitable. So we we need to manage what's now unavoidable, and we need we need to avoid what would be unmanageable. So we need to manage what we can no longer avoid. That's the level of climate change already, and we need to avoid what would be unmanageable. And we've gotten little glimpses of this in the last few months. You know, where rain. You know, you get you basically get a year of rainfall in one day. You know, in In different places around the world, triggering giant mudslides, for instance, in Germany, as it did this summer. So, you know, that's that's I think the the biggest thing we do. If we if we don't do that, we'll we'll be another one of nature's bad biological experiments. You know, nature's just very experimental. She doesn't need us; we need her. And if we behave in ways that take the Amazon and flip it into a savanna, nature doesn't care. Amazon savanna, she doesn't care. And so, you know, nature all the time is. Uh, takes her species and returns them to the manufacturer, and never think she can't do that with us. But the the positive scenario is, if we do get ready for a clean economy future, we will be healthier, we will be fitter, as a society, we'll be more just, we'll have more allies around the world, because we will actually be creating the clean green technologies that can actually power every other country in the world at a much less cost. That's our job. Is to take the upfront costs to drive, you know, this this cell phone here, you know, this this would have cost two thousand dollars when it came out or five thousand, whatever. 
But once you get the volume down and up and you get the technology down, you start to be able to produce stuff at lower and lower prices. What we did for this, we need to do for cell phones and sorry, for solar panels and, and, and wind and drive them down the cost volume curve so everybody in the world and make some of them modular can have them. That would be my, my hope. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for this. It's been Thanks very so enlightening. Much. I appreciate it. Good luck, okay? Thank you.